We're in Isaiah chapter 6. We're picking up here in verse 5, which is where we left off last time. Isaiah 6, verse 5. And let's just read the rest of the chapter here. We're going to try and get through the the whole chapter tonight. Isaiah 6, verse 5 says this, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and, and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Now, last, last Wednesday night, we actually looked at God's throne room. And I encourage you, if you weren't here, to go back and listen to the message or watch it online. Uh, but it, it really is an amazing scene here that Isaiah is recording for us in the first four or five verses where he's seen the throne room of God and he's brought up in the Spirit to actually see God sitting there on His throne in His uh, holiness and the train of His robe filling uh, His temple in heaven with glory. And then we see Isaiah's response to this heavenly scene in verse 5. Isaiah is a man of God. He's a prophet of God. He's a man who uh, was proclaiming the Word of God, but he was still just a man. And there's uh, none righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect. We're all fallen creatures. We're all fallen people. And when you come into the presence of God, as Isaiah did, you recognize no matter how righteous you may think you are, how much better you think you are compared to other people, you will recognize, as Isaiah did, that you're still a sinner and God is without sin. He is perfectly sinless and holy and righteous and just and true. And so we see Isaiah's response here in verse 5 to this glimpse of God on his throne in heaven in this vision, and he says, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is always the proper response when any uh, man or woman of God 
um, recognizes the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Now, it's interesting that Isaiah probably was not uh, a wicked man. I'm sure he was a very righteous man. He was a very godly man. And yet, he uh, humbles himself before God when he enters into the presence of God. And we see that this is actually somewhat of a pattern in the Scriptures when uh, the people of God are humbling themselves in order to uh, petition God or ask God for mercy or ask God for grace. It, it often begins with repentance. In Daniel chapter 9, the prophet Daniel was pleading with God. He was actually, I'll, I'll read you verses 1 to 3 and, and, and you'll have the context here before this prayer that Daniel prayed here to God. But Daniel was a righteous man. He was a godly man. He was uh, really undefiled by the things of Babylon. And there's really no sin recorded of Daniel's life. Although he's a sinner, it wasn't recorded for us in the book of Daniel. But we read here in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1, "...in the first year of Darius the son of Asherus of the lineage of the Medes..." who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now again, Daniel was a man who would not compromise. He wouldn't even uh, stop praying publicly when he was ordered by the king, Darius, to stop praying. He would not stop praying. He continued to pray and he was taken and thrown into the lion's den. Uh, and God shut the mouths of the lions. But he was a good man, a godly man, a righteous man. And when he recognized that the 70 years were nearly up, that they had been in Babylon. And, and Jeremiah the prophet, uh, God showed Jeremiah, Jeremiah recorded in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, that they would be there for 70 years in Babylon. It was going to be a long time, but they would eventually come back to Jerusalem, the Jews, uh, after a 70-year captivity. And Daniel was reading the writings of Jeremiah, the prophet, he was studying the prophecies, studying the Word of God, looking forward for what God was going to do next among God's people. And he realized that the 70 years of desolations were just about up and it was about time for the Jews to be able to go back to their holy land. And so we see that as he uh, recognizes that, that the time is, is, is almost up, that God had set before the Jews would come back into the promised land, he says, I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And now I'm going to read this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer uh, here by Daniel. He says, And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession. And I said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. He says, We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. Neither have we heeded Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land." 
Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to You, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which You have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against You. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against You. Stop right there and notice, He's including Himself when He's repenting of the sins of the nation. He's repenting of the sins of the nation, sins that He personally didn't commit, but because He's part of that nation, He is repenting on behalf of the nation, including Himself. He says, we, our sins, we have sinned against You. Uh, to us, we deserve this judgment. And he's a righteous man. But the sins of a nation are the sins of a nation. So although we're here tonight and we not, may not be guilty of all of the horrible things going on in our country, it's still the sins of our nation that are crying out for God's judgment and His justice upon our land. And we have to understand that. God must judge sin. Even if we're not out there participating in all of the unfruitful works of darkness that are going on all around us, our sins are still stenching up toward heaven. The stench of our sin no doubt is reaching the very throne room of God from the United States of America. And it's just a matter of time before God must judge our nation even as He judged the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. He says in verse 10, continuing, he says, we, again, including himself here, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against Him. He's including Himself in this prayer of repentance, although He was not guilty of the sins that were committed. He wasn't even there in Judah. Uh, uh, he was taken away as a boy captive into Babylon, and yet He's repenting of the sins of His nation as a model for us. He continues in verse 12, he says, And He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which He does, though we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made Yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all Your righteousness, I pray, let Your anger and Your fury be turned away from Your city Jerusalem, Your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, 
Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations." And the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. He's throwing himself upon the mercy of the Lord. He's acknowledging his sin. He's acknowledging the sin of his nation, of the people of God, and he's just falling on the mercy of God. He's saying it's not because of our righteous deeds that I'm appealing to you because we have no real righteousness to give to God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. He says, but because of your great mercies, verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, and for your city and your people who are called by your name. This is exactly what God told Solomon, King Solomon, when he was dedicating the first temple. Uh, God appeared to Solomon, and, and God told him this. I'll read this to you, and you're going to be very familiar with this passage. It's from the National Day of Prayer that we use this. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 12 says this. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's exactly what Daniel was doing. That's what Isaiah was doing. He was humbling himself. He was repenting before God. He was saying, I, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell a, among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, Isaiah said before the Lord when he came into his presence. But notice here, of my people who are called by my name. In America today, that's you and I. We have Christ's name upon us. If you're a Christian here tonight, you're the one who is called by God's name. You have Christ's name upon you. Israel had God's name upon them. El for Elohim, the name of God or the title of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the name of God. They had, they had God's name upon them. Israel, the people of God, governed by God. Striving with God. Jacob, your name will be changed to Israel. And then Israel was the name of the nation. The ten tribes, the ten sons of Jacob became the twelve, uh, the twelve tribes of Israel. And he's saying, if my people who are called by my name in the Old Testament time, times, that was Israel. Today, that is the church. These are the Christians. My people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I don't know that we're really um, in a place where we're actually repenting before God as God's people for the sins of our nation, but we should be. We should be repenting before God in our prayers and in our time of uh, private prayer before God or as families or, or as married couples or what have you or as a church 
We, we have to understand that this is our place to come before God, not the place of the non-Christians and the unbelievers who don't care about God. They don't care about the things of God. This is to us if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. We have to, we have to walk in righteousness. We have to walk in holiness because again, our God is holy. He continues again in verse 5, Woe is me, I'm a, I am undone. Back in Isaiah 6, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So he's, he's not talking about unclean hands or unclean actions or unclean deeds. He's saying, I, I have unclean lips. My mouth, things come out of my mouth that are not right sometimes, he's saying. He's the prophet of God. Read 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. He spoke the Word of God and spoke it and spoke it and spoke it as the Spirit of God came upon him and yet he was still a man. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Our words are uh, very, very important to God. Our lips, our words, what we say with our, with our mouths, with our lips, with our voice. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs chapter 6, we're told here that there are seven things that God hates. Proverbs 6.16 says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord or seeds of discord among the brethren. And so you notice if there's seven things God says that He hates, you, you really don't want to do the seven things God says that He hates, right? I mean, this is the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. A wise man, a wise woman would study Proverbs and say, I want to do the right things and I don't want to do the wrong things. I want to be wise. I don't want to be a fool. I want to be righteous. I don't want to be wicked. So if God says there's seven things that He hates that are an abomination to Him, we want to know what those uh, seven things are and we don't want to practice those things. But notice that a lot of these things, several of them have to do with our words, with our speech. A lying tongue. So speaking lies from our mouths. God hates lying. A lying tongue. God never lies. He always tells the truth. Jesus never spoke a lie. He says um, a false witness who speaks lies. And so a false witness uh, would testify in court against somebody or in a judicial setting. And a false witness speaking lies could result in capital punishment for the person that they're lying about. Very serious. Uh, it's why we used to put our hand on a Bible and swear an oath to God before we would testify uh, in court. And then he says, and one who sows discord or plants seeds of discord among the brethren. Again, this would be someone who's trying to divide the body of Christ, who's speaking in a way into people's ears to cause division, to cause conflict, to turn people against each other, to, ca to cause church splits to occur, and these sorts of things. God hates this. And so we have to be careful. We, we, our, 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 our mouths are not our own. Our mouths belong to God. Our whole body belongs to God. And so we have to tame our tongues. 
And Isaiah was saying, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It's interesting that Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, again, a scripture that many of you know, says this, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And then he says in verse 24, And put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put perverse lips far from you. And so the heart is connected to the mouth. As Jesus taught, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside of you comes out through your words. You hang around somebody, you listen to them long enough, you'll get to know what's in their heart because eventually what's in the heart will come out of the mouth. And he's saying, guard your heart with all diligence. Guard your heart. How would you guard your heart with all diligence? You'd watch your mouth. Of course, you have to be careful what's in your heart. But guard your heart, guard your mouth, for out of it spring the issues of life and put away from you a deceitful mouth. Because remember, God hates lying and He hates one who sowed seeds of discord among the brethren and and, and and He hates perverse lips. He says, put perverse lips far from you. This would be dirty language, dirty joking, perversion in the mouth, speaking things that are perverted. Jesus said in Matthew and chapter 12, Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Very serious. Jesus is saying you're going to answer. I'm going to answer for every careless word that is spoken. Thank God for the blood of Jesus that washes us white as snow. By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The only way that a man is justified is by believing on Christ, by claiming Christ as his Savior. Declaring that Jesus is Lord. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And then you shall be saved. That's how you're justified by your words. But everyone who is going to stand before the great white throne judgment of God is going to give an answer for every word they've ever spoken. Every word they've ever spoken. Every act they've ever done. Every action they've ever done. And every thought, Jesus said, every man's going to be judged by every thought that he had on the, at the great white throne judgment. For us who are in Christ, thank God we're not going to be there at the great white throne judgment. We're going to go to the Bema seat of Christ because Jesus Christ has washed us white as snow and He has given us His righteousness in the place of our wickedness. James tells us that there is uh, death and life in The power of the tongue. Again, back to our words again. 
you know, they say the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, the pen is just something that someone's writing that someone is going to read out loud later and you could issue a decree with the pen. That's why they say the pen is mightier than the sword. But what you're writing is words. Words are so powerful. In James, in chapter 3, James says this about the tongue in verse 2. He says, For we all stumble in many things, and if anyone does not stumble in word or what he says... He's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and it boasts great things." See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. And it sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water, water and fresh. And so the tongue. We are men and women of unclean lips. We dwell among a people of unclean lips. And as such, we are defiled even by our own tongues as human beings. David declares in Psalm 39.1, David says, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. Boy, it's sure hard when you're dealing with wicked people to bite your tongue, isn't it? To hold your tongue. David says, I'm just going to have to muzzle my mouth when I'm around the wicked so I don't just let them have it and just, just you know, let go and let loose on them. I'll guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. Our words have the power of life and the power of death. In the tongue. So back again in Isaiah, after Isaiah the prophet says this to the Lord, Woe is me, verse 5, I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We read in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim, Angels that are there before the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy. They're there before the throne day and night, always before the throne of God, worshiping Him. Flew to me, having in His hand a live coal, which He had taken with the tongs from the altar. And He touched my mouth with it, and He said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. So God's response to Isaiah's humility, his repentance, his acknowledgement of his sin. He didn't say, oh, all these other people are wicked, but I'm good. 
No, he realized he wasn't good because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's, he's, he's a man, so therefore he's a sinful man because all men are sinful. So he was repentant. He was humble. He uh, fell upon the mercy of God and God's response was mercy and grace and forgiveness. He touched his mouth with a coal from the tongs taken, uh, a coal from the altar, touched his mouth and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin is purged. The Bible tells us that God seeks to remove our sin as far as the east and the west. And Jesus does this for us if you're in Christ. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank God He didn't say as far as the north is from the south. If you travel you know, north, eventually you're going to cover the North Pole. You're going to start heading south again and you're going to run right back into your sin. But he said as far as the east is from the west, you start heading east and you start flying around the planet Earth or sailing around the planet, you're never going to enter anywhere west. You're continuing to go east forever. Uh, and so God says, I will remove your sins permanently, forever, as far as the east is from the west. He casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness and casts our sins behind our, His back so that He chooses not to look at our sin any longer for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John tells us this. John the Apostle, speaking of God forgiving our sins in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, this is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all our sin." If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. So the key is to stay humble. The key is to, is to recognize who you are and who I am in the light of who God is. He's holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. We're sinners. We always have to remember that when we come before uh, the Lord in prayer and when we seek the Lord that, that you know, we have to have clean hands and a clean heart. We have to walk in the light as He Himself is in the light. We cannot walk in darkness and say that Jesus is okay with us walking in darkness. It's an abomination. We can't say we have no sin just because we're saved. We say we have no sin, we're, we're, we're liars. The truth is not in us. Because God says that we are sinners. So, uh, but God makes provision for our sins in order to clean us up and in order to save us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17, Paul the Apostle said this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Remember, Jesus said you will know a tree by its fruit. A good tree will produce good fruit, and a bad tree will produce bad fruit. Our fruit is our lives, our actions, our words, even our thoughts to some degree are the fruit of who we are. A good tree produces good fruit. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. Pastor Chuck used to say, Chuck Smith, 
you know, with the idea of people saying that they're saved but continuing to live after the world, the flesh, and the devil. And people would say, well, they say they're saved, but there's no change. They're out there getting stoned, getting high, fornicating, sleeping around, practicing adultery, practicing sexual perversion, homosexuality, or whatever. But they say, but I'm saved. And they would ask Chuck, well, what do you say to that? He says, well, uh, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, if there's no change, then there's no change. If there's no change in their behavior, then there's no change in their heart. Because the old things are passed away and behold, all things have become new for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, now all of these things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So you and I, we are now ambassadors. Those who are new creatures, who who are born again, we are now ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is like a foreign emissary working in a foreign embassy of a foreign nation. They're there representing another king, another kingdom. And that's who we are now. This earth is not our home. We're just passing through. We don't belong to this world. We are sojourners. We are journeying through this life We're not to be weighed down and tied down with sin and the things and the cares of this world. We're to travel light, as it were, because this is not our home. We're just passing through. We are ambassadors or diplomats for Jesus Christ. It's no longer about us. It's about Jesus. He bought us with His blood. He purchased us. We were bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. And so we we implore those who are not saved. Uh, we, we plead with them, and it's God pleading with them through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's who we are now. Positionally in Christ. We are positionally righteous in Christ. Jesus is perfect, and He has given us His perfect righteousness. Positionally, we are righteous. We are made perfect. Practically, we're still sinners until we get our new body and until we get to go to be with the Lord. We're going to struggle with sin. We're going to struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But Jesus Christ has overcome and we will one day be with Him in heaven where there is no more sin. Again, back in Isaiah chapter 6, continuing in verse 8, He says also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now it's interesting, if you are not looking for God to reveal His triune nature in the Old Testament, you may miss it. But if you look for it, you're going to see throughout the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but throughout the Old Testament, you see The triune nature of God revealed. God is three persons, one God. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
Again, we don't understand it, but then again, I'm sure you don't understand quantum physics either. There are many more dimensions than just the three or four dimensions that we live in here. Scientists tell us that the laws of physics are different once you, once you get off of our planet. They don't even understand the universe. They say the universe is not slowing down. It's speeding up as it's expanding. It makes no sense. It breaks the second law of thermodynamics. They don't understand it. It blows their mind. They say that there's at least 11 dimensions that they know theoretical dimensions that exist, although we only live in a three-dimension world. Space, uh, width, or uh, length, width, and height. We live in a three-dimension world. You add time, you have a fourth dimension. But they say there's at least 11 dimensions. Some quantum physicists tell us there's 18 dimensions, theoretical. They know there's 11. We only live in four, if you include time as a dimension. And some say there's upwards of 33 different dimensions. These quantum physicists, if you get into quantum uh, physics and quantum computing and so forth. And so we don't understand how God could be three in one, but that's what he is. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and it's one God, three persons. And so if you look for this in the Old Testament, of course, it's not a secret. God reveals it in the Old Testament. And of course, he reveals it uh, in the New Testament. But he says, Whom shall I send? Notice who's speaking. It's the voice of the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, so the Lord is speaking, whom shall I send? Singular. And who will go for us? Plural. So we have God who is referring to Himself in the plural form, not the singular form. Who will go for us? But again, it's it's not. it shouldn't surprise us. From the very beginning, that's how God spoke. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God said this. Then God said, Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God said, let us make man in our image. The Trinity. He didn't say, let me make man in my image. He could have said that, but that's not what he said. He said, let us make man in our image. The triunity of God. One God, three persons. In Genesis chapter 3, and verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Once again, God reveals to himself as uh, in the plural. Behold, the man has become like one of us. He doesn't say the man has become like me. He says man has become like us. One more example in Genesis chapter 11. Because a lot of people, the Muslims especially, of course the Jews don't believe in the Trinity, the, the Orthodox Jews. The Muslims don't believe in the Trinity. But you know the Muslims believe in the Old Testament. They claim Moses. Uh, and they claim Abraham and so forth. The Muslims. Of course the Jews also. This is their Bible, the Old Testament. And so it's here. It's not a New Testament, uh, Testament theology only. The triunity of God. It's throughout the Old Testament as well. One more Scripture. Genesis chapter 11, with the Tower of Babel, the Lord says this in verse 6, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, 
let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So you have three examples of God referring to Himself in the plural in the book of Genesis in the first 11 chapters. Let us go down, God says. Not let me go down. Let us go down. And they're confused or confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And by the way, <clears throat> we have recreated the Tower of Babel through technology today. And man is of one language again through Google Translate and uh, the Babel program and all of these different programs, computer programs, you can communicate with anyone on the planet in whatever language. As long as it's a written language, everybody in the world can communicate now just like they could uh, here before God confounded their language. And it's interesting that God said they were building a tower to heaven literally to make contact with the fallen angels to worship the stars of heaven. The ziggurats, the towers that were built all over the ancient world were for communication with the demons, with the false gods. And so God said if they complete this building project, the Tower of Babel, nothing will be impossible for them. Why? Because they would have the secret knowledge that comes from Satan himself. Satan's always trying to give people secret knowledge. Forbidden knowledge. The forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan is still trying to give people that forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Things that we are to be uh, away from and to keep ourselves away from. Uh, magic and, and, and witchcraft and sorcery and these things. People go after that seeking power, seeking knowledge. And Satan will give them secret knowledge. Uh, you know, people offer human sacrifice and all the rest as you know. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. So God says, let us go down there, confound their language that they may, may not understand one another's speech. This is the first time in human history that man can communicate with one another. And what is man going to do? He's going to re rebel against God, reject God, and he's going to worship and serve the Antichrist rather than the God who created everything in the last days with man having one language again. So again, he, he continues here in Isaiah 6 and verse 8. He says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The triune God speaking. Then I said, Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. Isaiah was willing to go. He was willing to be a man of God. He was willing to say yes to God. He was willing to repent of his sins, humble himself before the holiness of God, receive God's atonement to remove his iniquity, to cleanse his mouth, to cleanse his heart, and to prepare him for a great work. And God used Isaiah in a mighty way indeed. And he says, here am I, send me. And God is still looking for faithful servants, faithful men and women. He's still calling out and saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who will volunteer to come to the front of the line and say, here I am. Use me, God. I'm available. I, I, and God is not looking for your ability. He's looking for your availability. He's not so much concerned with how talented you are, how gifted you are, how qualified you are. As a matter of fact, look at all the disciples that Jesus picked. They were uneducated, illiterate fishermen, overwhelmingly so. 
God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Not many mighty, Paul said, are called. But he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So it's not about how talented you are. It's just, are you available? And really, are you humble enough to just say, Lord, here I am. Send me. Here I am. Use me. I want to be used of you. And he will use you. He continues in verse 9. And he said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Verse 10, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Now, Jesus quotes from this in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11, which I will read to you. But really, this is the judgment of God in, in Isaiah's time. This was the judgment of God uh, that was going to be coming against Judah uh, because as the prophet was preaching to them and as the prophet was warning them and as the prophet was trying to get them to turn back to God, they were just paying God lip service. And, uh, and the more that you hear the Word of God and you reject it and you reject it and you reject it and you reject it, at some point your heart is going to become hardened to the Word of God. And then you won't care at all. That's the most dangerous thing for someone to be given over to their sin where there's no more conviction. There's no more guilt. There's no more remorse. Look at the serial killers. They call them psychopaths. They don't care. They have no heart, no feeling, no emotions. No compassion. And so it's, it's a very dangerous thing to reject Jesus Christ. If today you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. We have to keep our hearts tender and sensitive. Otherwise, our hearts become hardened. And then we become bitter. And then at the end of that, God gives people over to do whatever they want to do. And that's the final judgment upon them. Being given over by God. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 13. In verse 11, He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and will not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes have clo they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. And then he says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
And so Jesus was explaining the parables to his disciples and the parables that he would tell the people, you know, they didn't really understand. It was kind of like a mystery. Jesus was speaking in parables and they'd have to come to him to really get the understanding of the parable. And so if people really didn't want to learn what Jesus had to say, they didn't come to get the explanation from Jesus. And and so he says, um, uh, basically, I, I speak to them in parables because Seeing they don't see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And that's because God knew their hearts, that they were primarily out to kill Jesus, not to follow Him and obey Him and call Him Lord. As a matter of fact, Paul the Apostle quotes uh, this from Isaiah chapter 6 at the end of Acts. In Acts chapter 28 and verse 23, Paul the Apostle, we read about, he sa- it says this, So when they had appointed Him a day, Many came to him at his uh, lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two years in his own rented house and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And so it's not God's fault if people reject the gospel. Every man can be saved. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Not just the elect. Jesus' sins are for the propitiation, 1 John 2, 2, of the whole world. Not for our sins only, but Jesus died and atoned for the sins of the whole world. But, but not all will be saved because not all will come to Christ through faith. There are many who have no interest in, in Jesus Christ. They just don't want God to rule over them. Just like those who put Jesus on the cross when Pilate said, well, what should I do with Him? They said, give us Barabbas. What should I do with the one you call King of the Jews? They said, crucify Him, crucify Him. We will not have this man to rule over us. And nothing has changed. There's many people today who hear the Gospel. They, they, they hear the, the free gift of salvation and they reject it. And they reject it and they reject it. And at some point, their ears will become hardened or deafened and their hearts will become hardened and they will then no longer be able to respond because they've hardened their hearts against the Holy Spirit. Very dangerous if we harden our hearts against the Holy Spirit. He concludes back in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 11, the prophecy continuing. He says, Then I said, Lord, how long? And then he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitants, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, 
The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Now, we know that this prophecy occurred in the year that King Uzziah died. We're told that in verse 1. Uh, Bible scholars tell us that was somewhere in the neighborhood of 738 or 739 B.C., before Christ, that King Uzziah died. At that time, the ten tribes, northern tribes of Israel, were still there in the land. The ten northern tribes who were the kingdom of Israel. The two southern tribes is where Isaiah was, were in Judah. You had two nations divided under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. The nation of Israel split in two. Ten northern tribes became the nation of Israel. Two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, became the kingdom of Judah. Two kings, two kingdoms. They often fought each other. And at this time when King Uzziah died, um, Israel was still there. Israel was still in their land, the ten northern tribes. However, uh, within just a short period of time, the Assyrians would come in 721 B.C., and would obliterate Israel, the ten northern tribes. The Assyrians would come. They made war with them. They conquered them. They removed them from their land. And they basically assimilated them throughout their empire, the Assyrian Empire. And so the first part of this prophecy was fulfilled within about 20 years or so after uh, God showed this to the prophet Isaiah when he says, until the cities are laid waste, until they're without inhabitant, until the houses are without a man and the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. He says, but yet one-tenth will be in it. So the one-tenth is really speaking of the two southern tribes that were left in the, in, in the promised land. This was Judah and Benjamin, and they made up approximately one-tenth of the whole nation of Israel, as it were. And so one-tenth was left, Judah was left, and Benjamin uh, he says, and they'll return and be for consuming. It's not going to go well for them as a terebinth oak tree or an oak whose stump remains when it's cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. And the uh, they were carried away into Babylon about a hundred years after uh, the ten northern tribes were taken and, and by the Assyrians into captivity. The Babylonians came, Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Jerusalem, conquered the city of Jerusalem, and carried them away captive uh, into Babylon in 586 uh, B.C. And so for Isaiah, much of this was future for him, but it happened. Uh, he saw the first part of the prophecy happen. He didn't see the final part of the judgment come against Judah. That happened after he was off the scene. But everything that's in the Bible is going to come to pass. Not one word of God will, will fail. Because heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Jesus said. The Word of God endureth forever. It, it abides forever. It will, never, it will never fail. Not one prophecy of God will ever fail. All that we see happening in our world today was predicted and prophesied by the prophets. You see that explosion in Lebanon yesterday? It looked like a nuclear bomb went off in Lebanon. It wasn't a nuclear bomb. They say it was about uh, 110... Uh, um, 
I, I, I forget, I should have written it down, but uh, it, it, was, it, was a lot of, it was a lot of explosive power. It, it was about, I think it was about 0.6 kilotons of explosives where Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, were, were 13. So this was about a half a kiloton. Nagasaki and Hiroshima was 13 kilotons, roughly. Uh, this was a big explosion in the Middle East. Hezbollah has been attacking Israel through Lebanon and through Syria. There's a war that's coming, that's predicted to come in Israel. The Russians, the Iranians, and the Turks, among others, are going to be invading Israel. Ezekiel 38 and 39 tell us all the players are right there in the Middle East, in Syria and in Lebanon. Turkey, Erdogan, is trying to rebuild the Ottoman Empire, which ruled the Middle East for 500 years. He's, he's conquering land all over in northern Syria, northern Iraq. He is trying to go over and take Cyprus. He's trying to take land from the Libyans. He's trying to recreate the Turkish Empire. He just converted a church into a mosque that had been, it's one of the oldest churches of the Byzantine Empire, built one of the oldest churches in the world in Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul. He just started, he just turned it into a mosque after 80 years. It has been a church. It was a church in the 6th century or 7th century A.D., the Ottoman Turks conquered the land. They converted it into a mosque. For 500 years, it was a mosque. Then the Turks became more moderate. They were one of the most moderate nations in the Middle East from the 1930s on. They were friendly to the Jews, where most of the other neighbors of Israel were enemies. The Turks had been friends to the Jews, but not anymore. Erdogan is trying to rebuild the Turkish Ottoman Empire, and he is going to join... Russia, and he is going to join Iran, and they are going to attack Israel. Ezekiel 38 and 39 tell us it's a war that hasn't happened yet. All the players are there. All the pieces are lined up. And it says that they're going to attack Israel to take spoils of war. Do you know that Erdogan right now is trying to steal gas from the Mediterranean Sea that belongs to Cyprus, Greece, and to Israel? The Russians are threatened by this gas pipeline because they are shipping gas into southern Europe and Russia is the main supplier of gas to the Europeans and now the Israelis have found a massive amount of, 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 of natural gas, liquid natural gas and, and oil in the Mediterranean Sea and they are piping it into Egypt, they're piping it into Jordan and they're piping it into southern Europe. All of these players, all of the pieces of the puzzle, a prophecy that was written 2,600 years ago, has yet to be fulfilled. It will likely be fulfilled in our lifetime. And so every prophecy of God, every word of God, every promise of God will come true. Every judgment of God, every woe judgment, every trumpet judgment, every bowl judgment that God is going to pour out in the book of Revelation upon the world, the Antichrist, is going to happen. Not one word of God will fail. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, 
Email us at coah podcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.